Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. I'm so grateful you've joined us for our study through the doctrine of repentance. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon on the doctrine of repentance. If I didn't introduce myself, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Sam, and we've been working through a series on repentance here at the College and Young Adult Ministry of Trinity Community Church, and we'll be spending the rest of the entire summer studying the doctrine of repentance. Eternity. Endless ages, never-ending life hangs on repentance. Are you really repenting? Answers mean nothing. You could say whatever you want in response to that question. Reality means everything. Do you know what has been absolutely thrilling me these last now four weeks, I believe? A culture of discipleship is growing in here. I increasingly sense that the people in here are concerned, that you are concerned, that you've grown worried about yourself and about your friends who are not repenting. This has drawn alarm in your mind and in your heart. You've, you've become more sane. You've become more serious. You've become less silly this month. That is good. And you realize that fake repentance is really the, the real pandemic threatening us these days. You've witnessed how deceptive that counterfeit repentance is, and you've learned that everyone feels conviction for their sin. You've heard Jesus say that the Holy Spirit convicts the entire world. And so some of us who had previously mistaken conviction of sin as repentance are no longer doing that. And that's good. Uh, Conviction is to signal to us that we need to repent. But we must, in fact, repent. You know that conviction isn't evidence of faith. Conviction isn't evidence of salvation. Repentance is. And so you have begun to uh, want to see your sin for what it is so that you can repent. Repentance requires having sight of sin, seeing sin in God's sight as God sees it. And you want this for your friends as well. Many of you have come and shared, my goodness, I I believe that I've been given the new birth and that I've been led by God's kindness to repentance, but I'm worried about my friends. And you want your friends to see their sin as sinful, exceedingly sinful. You love them. You fear for them that they'll die in their sins and you hate the idea that they would perish and you're right to do so. And God is is bringing a revival of sorts to the young adults here in this church. It's, it's, It's a wonder to behold. It's exciting to see. May God give the increase. Now, if we are Christians, 
We must become experts on true repentance. How many of you have ever heard that before? How many of you have ever thought that of all the theological categories that we must master as Christians, we need to be scientists on what is real repentance? We need to know it. We need to know what is fake repentance. We need to be able to identify it because this is going to be the rest of our lives in Christ, ladies and gentlemen. I'm convinced, not because I'm a great preacher, I'm convinced that because of the substance of what we've been studying and will continue to study this summer, uh, trust me, I think you're going to be talking about this series 30 years from now. I think you're going to be looking back going, that changed my life more than any other series. Not because Sam was eloquent, not because of any, not because the sun, sun was blinding our eyes from the side as we were listening, but because repentance was not what I thought it was. And once I realized what the scriptures say repentance was or is, it changed my life. It changed my life forever. Now, what is real repentance? Does the Bible leave us in the dark on this matter? It speaks to it a great deal. And God's so gracious to tell us and to make no mistake about it. Repentance is sight of sin. It's seeing sin for what sin is. Seeing sin in God's sight. Secondly, repentance is sorrow for sin. It's sorrow for sin. Uh, By any chance, did you know that we get the word sorry from sorrow? I know it's amazing most profound thing you've heard all day, I'm sure. But when we say, I'm sorry, what we're saying is an abbreviated form of, I'm sorrowful. I'm experiencing sorrow for what I've done. Now, how many times have you said, I'm sorry, and not had a midget's worth of sorrow in your heart whatsoever? I mean, uh, how many times growing up on the playground did we have a scuffle with someone and the teacher pulls us by the ear and says, say you're sorry. I'm sorry. Is that sorrow? Or my goodness, I've got my younger brother here, my only sibling in the uh, in the world uh, here. And I'm sure growing up, mom and dad would bring us together. Now say you're sorry to your brother. You want to know the one that really got to me when we were really going at it? Hug your brother and tell him you love him. <laughs> My parents bred hypocrites, okay? So that's, that's what they did. That, uh, scripture speaks of godly sorrow, godly grief, godly sadness for sin. My friends... You have not repented. I have not repented. We're learning together here. Okay, I'm not preaching down to you. I'm preaching to the midst of us. You've not repented until you grieve your sin as really sinful. Let me say that again, because here we're learning together. You want to know what real repentance is. Eternity hangs in the balance. Damnation for the unrepentant. Salvation for the repentant. And repentance, I'll say it again, demands real sadness, real grief over your sin in your heart 
because it's sinful. I want you to flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read a chunk of scripture. It's good to read it in context, but our our senses will really heighten as we get to the portion. I particularly wish for us to uh, evaluate and be confronted by, deal with. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at 14. At some points I might skip a little bit, so just keep your eyes keen uh, where I do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and following. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's a good enough statement in its own right. Young men and women, just hear that. Do not, do not be yoked with unbelievers. If you are a believer, you are not to yoke in any way, in any meaningful way, in any way that an unbeliever can influence your life, influence the direction of your life, that yoke, that crossbeam that you put over your shoulders. You were to only yoke your life with people who are as strong, if not more strong than you in the Lord. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has a sanctuary of God with idols? For we are a sanctuary of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, here it is, come out from their midst And be separate, says the Lord. That's repentance. Have you done that, my friend? Or are you attending here on Sunday evenings and then going back into the world for the rest of the the week? Slipping back into darkness. Because that's not repentance. Coming here and pretending with us is not repentance. This does absolutely nothing for your soul to be here and to check the mark off and see I was in attendance. That does nothing for us, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I, here it is, I will welcome you. Notice that. That's the most wonderful thing in the world. That he says, listen, you're you're filthy. You're dirty. You've been in the world. You're getting some dirt on you. Come out from the world. I'll welcome you. Uh, You don't have to clean yourself off. I take care of all of that. Okay, come just as you are. I will not leave you as you are. But you come now. You hear what I'm saying? You come, I'll welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me. Sounds like a great deal. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh, and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, uh, by the way, he's referring to a severe letter that he wrote the church in Corinth after his first letter to the Corinthians, but before his second letter to the Corinthians. Technically, second Corinthians, technically, first Corinthians is second Corinthians and second Corinthians is fourth Corinthians. 
we know of two other letters that, that Paul wrote. He says, listen, I caused you sorrow by my letter. It was a severe letter. I, I do not regret it as I write this letter right now. I don't regret that letter. Though I did regret it at some point in the past. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow. Though only for a while, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful. You hear what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, I'm not a masochist. I don't just enjoy making people sad. Okay? I don't delight in the fact that what I wrote made you sad for the sake of it making you sad. That's, that's not what brings me joy. But here's what brings me joy. That you were made sorrowful to what? Repentance. They were really misbehaving. They were tolerating a bunch of sin. For you were made to have godly sorrow. The word is literally God word sorrow. Sorrow toward God. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. You don't, you cheering when we come back to town. You like what we're bringing. You're not, you're not looking at us as the bad news bearers when we come back to you. For godly, Godward sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world brings about death. Let me give you two examples of that real quick before we continue going on. I think of Cain and Judas. Worldly sorrow. Cain. Cain and Abel, they go. By the way, I've been absolutely mesmerized. I forgive, forgive me if, if, I've, if I've said this. But the text in Genesis does seem to suggest that Cain and Abel were twins. Eve conceived once and gave birth to Cain. And then without conceiving again, gave birth to Abel. So it seems like they might have been twins. So these two boys, these, these brothers, we know they're brothers. They come and they, they provide offerings. They, they make sacrifices before God. God says, Cain, that's unacceptable, man. Now, in that moment, the only rational thing to do is to say, whoa, hey, I've offended the God of the universe. I've brought an unworthy sacrifice. Tell me what to do. I will do better. I, I will, I'll make this right. But Cain goes away and it says that his face had fallen. His face had fallen. He was downcast. He was discouraged. He was, he was dismayed. And God goes to Cain and says, Cain, listen, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to conquer you. But if you do well, you will master it. You'll get it back in its place. And what does Cain do? He says, Abel, come out to the field with me. If God wants a sacrifice, I'll give him a sacrifice. And the word is in the New Testament, 1 John, that he cut Abel's throat. He slaughtered Abel. In the moment when his face was downcast, you and I would have looked at Cain and said, that man's repentant. That man is experiencing sorrow for his sin. And we would have been dead wrong. Judas. 
came in and wept. He threw the money back into the temple. But all he feared was for his own life. He realized, wait a second, I've borne false witness. The excitement of getting money is all over. And if it gets found out, if someone tattles on me that I bore false witness, my condemnation matches the man against whom I bore false witness. He's getting crucified. Matthew's gospel says specifically when he saw that Jesus had been condemned, that's when he panicked. And he said, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. I I, want to be free of this. I want to wash my hands clean. But he's just wanting to save his own skin. Worldly sorrow taken to the extreme will kill someone else or will kill themselves, but it will not repent. For behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has brought about in you. It's brought about in you the real deal. What vindication of yourselves. Man, you're, you, you, you've proven that you're really born again, that you're really repentant Christians, that the church in Corinth is a real church. What indignation for sin. What Fear of God, what longing for Christ, what zeal in the spirit, what avenging of the wrongs that you've committed and everything you you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Isn't that wonderful? Listen, isn't it wonderful that if you and I repent, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we need only repent and he cleans us. It's done. We're innocent. Guiltless. I wrote to you, Paul says, that your earnestness on our behalf might be manifested to you in the sight of God. Did you hear that? Paul says, I'm writing this letter to you because it helps you to hear me say you're repenting. You realize how we need that needs to be our Christian community. When we go into our small groups, guys, you have to be forming friendships. You have to be forming relationships. You have to be taking one another one another out to coffee and stuff, getting to know one another, making close bonds in there. Because one of the greatest gifts that you and I could do as brothers and sisters in Christ is to say, you're repentant, man. That excites me. That convicts me. That challenges me. That comforts me. That provokes repentance in me. When I come confessing my sin and laying it out and say, this is wicked. I want to be done with it. I want to mortify it. I want to put it to death. Guess what it does in the hearts of my brothers and sisters? I want to kill that in me too. And we have a slaughter fest together on sin. Okay? And we enjoy the Savior together. We enjoy the one who blots out our sins and boasts about remembering them no more. We get that joy together. We sing together. We pray together. We worship together. We hear together. We're listening under the word together. We talk about it together. And we're doing this repentance together. It's a community project. I'm writing so that your earnestness would be obvious to you in the sight of God. We need to help each other by recognizing each other's repentance. 
And for this reason, Paul says, we have been comforted. You see that? That's the result. You want comfort? That's how we get comfort. Psalm 38 says, I am about to fall. Listen to these words. I am about to fall. And my sorrow is continually before me. Surely, I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. I'm going to read that one more time. I'm about to fall. And my sorrow is continually before me. Surely I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my what? Sin. Do you hear the panic? I'm about to fall. Do you hear the haunting? My sorrow is continually before me. Do you hear the result? I will confess my iniquity. Do you hear the overwhelming anxiety? I'm full of anxiety because of my sin. Uh, have you been hearing the latest in the news, by the way? How the, the, the latest uh, medical uh, specialists are coming out and they're saying that the whole chem- chemical imbalance theory of the brain and everything is totally bunk. That there's no evidence for that. It's just a way for the medicine folks to make a big buck on your issues. What do people need? What do people need? Repentance. Repentance. They're refusing to repent. Now, I'm not saying everyone that needs medicine is refusing to repent. Okay. I hope that you're understanding what I'm saying here. But a lot of them have secrets. A lot of them want control of their lives. A lot of them just won't forgive people. And so they cripple mentally, emotionally. There's a million reasons for anxiety and depression, but they ultimately come back to, in large, large numbers, a refusal to repent anxiety is the sweat of pride depression is anger turned inwards unrepented sin but the faithful grieve the faithful grieve they they have sorrow for their sin listen listen to what yahweh says of israel in zechariah 12 verse 10 well 12 chapter 12 it's more than verse 10 He says, I will pour out on the house of David. This is going to be in the future. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit. Listen to this carefully. This is amazing. I will pour out on them the spirit of grace. The spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me. This is Yahweh speaking. Whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. I shared this with some Jehovah's Witnesses who came over to my place one time. They did not know what to do with this. Jehovah is saying, they will look on me whom they have pierced, on him for whom they'll mourn. And they'll mourn as for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They're going to be sad because of him. They're going to to mourn out of love for him. 
They're going to mourn in repentance. This is godly, Godward sorrow. Finally, God's going to pour out his spirit of what? Grace. And this produces what? Sorrow towards God. Loving God that results in hatred of sin. In that day, he says, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. And I'm just going to serve the point of tonight's theme. Like the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn. Each family alone. The family of the house of David alone. And their wives alone. The family of the house of Nathan alone. And their wives alone. The family of the house of Levi alone. And their wives alone. The family of the Shemites alone. And their wives alone. All the families that remain. Each family alone and their wives alone. What's he saying? Everyone's going to go to their rooms and think about what they've done. That's, that's essentially what's being said. Can you imagine? This, what a picture. I will, pour, I will flood on Israel my spirit of grace so that they say, we love you, Lord, and we're so sorry. We're, we're really sorry for what we've done. And Yahweh finishes that passage saying, in that day, a fountain boom, will open for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for iniquity, vanquished. God loves doing this. You have sorrow for sin. You beg God for sorrow of your sin. I want to see my sin like you see it. I want to weep over it like you mourn over my sin. And God says, I will answer that prayer every time. But I only answer it when you seek me with all your heart. Do you really want this? Or is it just some flippant thing that you're saying as you flip through your TV channels? Yeah, sorry, I looked at that, God. Yeah, sorry. Oh, there's another thing. Sorry about that, Lord. Yeah, sorry. Sorry I said that. Yeah, sorry. No, is this something that you are actually taking to the Lord and saying, I am troubled. I'm vexed. I will go no further. I will do no other thing until we deal with this, until you give me your spirit of grace, whereby I weep. Now, women, unfortunately, have no children without suffering. That's just a fact. You know that the word here in, in 2 Corinthians, sorrow, it's lupeo. We get lupe. Does anyone know, know someone named Lupe? That's a sad name. It means sorrow. Okay? That's a sad, it's a beautiful name, but it's a sad name. It's, 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 that, it's that language of labor pains, of agony. Now, I would ask uh, any of the mothers in here to describe the sorrow Proceeding and during childbirth, but I decided, no, I'm not going to put anyone on the spot. Um, I googled best descriptions of <laughs> child pains, and there wasn't a lot of it that was appropriate for me to share, but I'm going to share with you uh, the ones that are. It's misery, waves of burning. Bone bending, flesh tearing, that's the worst one I'm going to say, back breaking, gut stabbing, insides wrecking, life exhausting, excruciating cramps like a Charlie horse in every one of your muscles all over your body. That was the worst part of it. I, I just, I, ah, that's horrible. 
bitterness of soul. Sorrow is crucifixion of the soul. My friends, have you ever, has God ever brought you to a point where you have that sort of visceral reaction to the fact that you are guilty before God for sin? And not just that you're fearful that you're in trouble for it. No, no one knows about it except God alone. And this grieves you to your very heart. It, it, it brings you into the throes of, of labor pains and sorrow. We have no repentance without sorrow. This is totally elementary. We know that if someone just says sorry and, and, and they don't show that they're sorry, we have every reason in the world to question their sorrow. Psalm 51. David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He, he's killed her husband. His best man wasn't just some unknown guy out there. This is one of his most loyal subjects. This man, David tried to mask his adultery with Bathsheba by bringing Uriah home to visit his wife so that he could blame the pregnancy on Uriah. And Uriah said, I am a man on duty. I will not go and visit my wife when my men are out there away from their wives. All this while the king is sleeping with his wife. Just, just disgusting, revolting sin. And David tried to hold out. He tried to stiff arm God. He tried to stiff arm conviction. He tried to stiff arm repentance. And it absolutely crushed him. It broke him. God said, I'm not going to let you go, David. And David finally writes Psalm 32. He says, it was like the almighty omnipotent hand of God was against me all day long. My strength evaporated. My bones deteriorated. It was agony. He writes Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. That's a sorrowful spirit. A broken and crushed heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Joel 2 says, tear your heart and not your clothes. It was a custom back then to rip your clothes, to, to wear sackcloth and ashes. Tear your heart and not your clothes. Now turn, that is repent to Yahweh your God, for he, we need to pause. Turn to him, why? For he is wrath. And he'll consume you in his anger? No. Turn to Yahweh. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. There are two reasons why people don't repent. One, they don't believe God's serious about sin, so they don't see sin. Two, they don't believe that God's gracious and will forgive them if they do run to him. My friends, you have to believe both. You have to believe both to run to him, to flee to him. No one's ever really repented who does not fully believe that God is gracious like he promises to be and fly to him. Have you ever wondered, how is it that we can cry at the end of Toy Story 4 and not cry over our sin? I, I want to put that question before you. Think, think of things that, 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 that you might shed tears over, that might tug on your emotions and ask yourself, why does my heart, why does my sin not evoke tears? Before a holy God. And stupid made up toys on a screen do. Something's wrong with me. Something's seriously wrong with me. Something I need to repent of. 
I need to repent of my lack of repentance. I need to repent of my lack of sorrow. I need to repent of my lack of sight of sin. That's a great way to start, guys. If you're paralyzed by the fact that you're like, I don't see sin the way that you're describing. I don't sorrow for sin. Then repent of that. Tell God that. Take that to God as sin. Your apathy is sin. And say, let's fix this, Lord. Help me. Save me from my apathy. Spring water and seawater are identical. They look the same. But one refreshes, the other one will kill you if you drink enough of it. There is true sorrow. There is false sorrow. And on the outside, they can look very similar. But they're very different. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezra, and Jesus all agree that godly sorrow for sin will strike the thigh and beat the chest and wears burlap and rips the hair from the head and the beard. Okay, you get the point here. This isn't legalism. I'm not suggesting that you guys go out and tear your beards out, men. Um, women probably should if you got one. Uh, right? Don't, don't, don't wear burlap. That's not necessarily what we're to do. The point is this. If Toy Story 4 can make me cry and not my own sin then something's seriously wrong and I need to teach myself that my sin is miserable. And so I'm going to put burlap on to discomfort myself in my sin because clearly I'm living a far too comfortable life. I'm going to rip my hair out because I'm living in comfort. Do you want to know one of the things I do most? I'll I'll regularly think I need to do something very uncomfortable right now because I do not want to be practicing comfort if persecution comes and people start threatening my life because I will do what I've practiced my entire life in that moment and I'll practice comfort. And I'll say, you know what? Yeah, having my head removed from my body doesn't sound so great. I like comfort. Do you understand why this is so important, guys? Killing sin and repentance is important because small sins lead to bigger sins. And bigger sins lead to full-on apostasy. But tearing your hair out and beating your chest and you're striking your thigh. These are just outer signs of the inner sorrow. The invisible signs of godly sorrow are Christ now precious to us like a surgeon coming into the surgery room on the battlefield to heal a mortally wounded soldier, to relieve the abscess by cutting it, to drain it out. We need that. We're like a soldier that's on the battlefield and and we're just absolutely torn asunder by by shrapnel. And they say that the the surgeon's nowhere to be found. You're going to die on this table. And you're just weeping and weeping. But then in comes the surgeon, fully equipped with his sutures and his medical utensils and his antibiotics. And you just weep for joy. I've got a savior. I've got a savior. I'm going to live. Has Christ become that to you? Or is he just a commodity? Is he just an accessory? Is he just nice? Psalm 126 says, Those who sow in tears of repentance shall reap, get this, and take it seriously, with shouts of joy. If you live a life of repentance, not forcing tears, but actually doing the work of seeing sin in light of Christ, And what it costs Christ. And grieving 
I did that to him. If we live in repentance tearfully now, it will be nothing except yes for eternity. I'm so glad that I shed tears for a while because it is elation forever now. There's no contest, you guys. There's no comparison. God is not just putting you under his thumb to say, live miserable. He's saying, I'm offering you joy. My commandment is eternal life. Grieve sin at the root of sin, not just at the fruit of sin. The heart does the sinning. The, the heart has to do the sorrowing. As sinners that, un, that are not repentant, they will hate their doings. They'll hate things they do. Gosh, I'm so stupid. Ah, oh, I wish I wouldn't do that. I wish I wasn't like this. Repentance hates desires. I hate that I desire that. Hypocrites hate consequences. Criminals hate being captured. Pharaoh hated the plagues. He didn't hate his sin. Do we hate our crime? If we had no conscience to convict us, no devil to accuse us, no hell to threaten us, would we still hate sin? Because sin is sin. Adulterous David doesn't say, my condemnation is ever before me. He says, my sin is ever before me. You see, that's the difference between a repenter and an unrepenter. God's children know that they live beyond gunshot of hell and damnation. True God's children know that they are beyond gunshot of hell and damnation, and yet they still hate sinning against God's grace. How sorry should we be for our sin? It's a good question. Let me ask you, how sorry are you when you suffer the loss of anything? Shouldn't godly sorrow surpass all earthly sorrow? Would you grieve the loss of a loved one over the loss of God's felt presence in your life? At a burial, just a friend departs. But in sin, every sin, it is God who departs. Not actually. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. But God will play the stranger, won't he? Toward those he loves. That we might be held in alarm. <gasps> Where did you go? And run after him in repentance. That horrifying atheistic numbness that comes after sin. You know it. Sorrow for sin should swallow every other sorrow. If you were to break your toe and then walk out the door, fall down a hill and break your femur, the broken femur would swallow up the pain of the broken toe. The same way, sorrow for sin should swallow up all other sorrow. David had more sorrow in his repentance than he had joy in Bathsheba. Would we lose our mind if we lost respect and money and loved ones and yet 
do we ever drop a tear in God's bottle? A tear of repentance in his bottle. You see, religion, folks, listen, religion, I don't care which religion, pick the religion. All religion is the carcass of repentance. It's a false notion. Real sorrow, it's habitual. It's a lifestyle. Sin is a chronic disease. And so don't stop dosing it with repentance. The first Lord's Supper. They got together, they ate the lamb, they had all the different dishes of the Seder meal, including bitter herbs like horseradish that would make your eyes water so as to counterfeit tears streaming out to remind you this is how serious it is. How can a broken Christ not break our heart? Now, four statements. We'll sing and discuss the good news. The good news for those of you that that are hearing this and are saying, oh, I see it. I see my sin. I've got sorrow under my sin. These words are for you. The more bitter your sin is to you, the sweeter the Savior becomes. There's no danger in seeing sin more bitter. Christ becomes all the sweeter. At our worst, he is at his best. Our grief of sin is always occasion for joy because there is infinite grace in him. And infinitely more grace in him than there are sins in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this is the truth. This is the reality. And we ask, oh God, that you would work by your kindness, real repentance into our souls. We ask it and we sing now in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. We meet on Sundays at 5.30 p.m. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. And if you're interested in a great Bible college here in the area, check out calchristiancollege.edu. Tune in next Tuesday for the next episode in our series. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.